When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Section 16 of The Golden Bell, Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 19. St. George and the Parilia. The early Italians were as much a pastoral as an agricultural people, and their kings would be expected to ensure the safety and fecundity of the flocks and herds. In the course of the preceding investigation, we found reason to assume that the old Latin kings, like their brethren in many parts of the world, were charged with certain religious duties or magical functions, amongst which the maintenance of the fertility of the earth held a principal place. By this I do not mean they had to see it only that the rain fell, and that the corn grew and trees put forth their fruits in due season. In those early days it is probable that the Italians were quite as much pastoral as an agricultural people, or in other words, that they depended for their substance no less on their flocks and herds than on their fields and orchards. To provide their cattle with grass and water, to ensure their fecundity and the abundance of their milk, and to guard them from the depredations of wild beasts, would be objects of the first importance with the shepherds and herdsmen who according to tradition found in Rome, and the king, as representative for embodiment of the deity, would be expected to do his part towards procuring these blessings for his people by the performance of sacred rites. The Greeks of the Homeric age, as we have seen, thought that the reign of a good king not only made the land bear wheat and barley, but also caused the flocks to multiply and the sea to yield fish. No more said to have been born and Rome to have been founded on the Shepherds' Festival of the Parilia, the 21st of April. In this connection, accordingly, it can be no mere accident that Rome is said to have been founded and the P.S. King Numa to have been born on the 21st of April, the day of the Great Shepherds' Festival of the Parilia. It is very unlikely that the real day either of the foundation of the city or Numa's birth should have been remembered, even if we suppose Numa to have been an historical personages rather than a mythical type. It is far more probable that both events were arbitrarily assigned to this date by the speculative antiquaries of a latter age on the ground of some assumed fitness or property. In what did this fitness or property consist? The belief that the first Romans were shepherds and herdsmen would be reason enough for supposing that Rome was founded on the day of the Shepherds' Festival, or even that the festival was instituted to commemorate the event. But why should Numa be thought to have been born on that day of all days? Perhaps it was because the old sacred kings, of whom he was the model, had to play an important part in the ceremonies of the day. The birthdays of the gods were celebrated by festivals. The kings were divine or semi-divine. It would be natural, therefore, that their birthday should be intended with high feasts and holidays. Whether this was so or not, the festival or the perilla represents so many points of resemblance to some of the popular customs discussed in these volumes that a brief examination of it may not be inappropriate in this place. The perilla, a festival celebrated by shepherds and herdsmen in honour of pales for the safety and increase of their flocks and herds. 
the spring festival of the twenty-first of april known as the birthday of rome was deemed second in importance to none in the calendar it was held by shepherds and herdsmen for the welfare and increase of their flocks and herds the pastoral deity to whom they paid their devotions was pales as to whose sex the ancients themselves were not at one in latter times they commonly spoke of her as a goddess but varro regarded pales as masculine and we may follow his high authority the day was celebrated with similar rites both in the town and the country but in its origin it must have been a strictly rural festival indeed it could hardly be carried out in full except among the shipfolds and cattle pens at some time of the day probably in the morning the people repaired to the temple of vesta where they received from the vestal virgins ashes blood and bean store to be used in fumigating themselves and probably their beasts the ashes were those of the unborn calves which had been torn from their mother's wombs on the fifteenth of april the blood was that which had dripped from the tail of a horse sacrificed in october both were probably supposed to exercise a fertilizing as well as cleansing influence on the people and on the cattle for apparently one effect of the ceremonies in the popular opinion was to quicken the wombs of women no less than of cows and ewes at break of day the shepherd purified his sheep after sprinkling and sweeping the ground the flocks purified by being driven through fire the fold was decked with leafy boughs and a great wreath was hung on the door the purification of the flocks apparently consisted in driving them over burning heaps of grass pine wood laurel and branches of the male olive tree certainly at some time of the day the sheep were compelled to scamper over the fire moreover the bleating flocks were touched with burning sulphur and fumigated with its blue smoke then the shepherd offered to pails baskets of millet cakes of millet and pails of warm milk the shepherd's prayer next he prayed to the god that he would guard the old from the evil powers including probably witchcraft and the flocks the men and the dogs might be hale and free from disease that the sheep might not fall a prey to wolves that grass and leaves might abound that water might be plentiful that the udders of the dams might be full of milk that the rams might be lusty and the ewes prolific that many lambs might be born and that there might be much wool at shearing this prayer the shepherd had to repeat four times looking to the east and he washed his hands in the morning dew after that he drank a bowl of milk and wine and warmed with liquor leaped over burning heaps of crackling straw this practice of jumping over a straw fire would seem to have been a principal part of the ceremonies as it struck the ancients themselves for they often refer to it the shepherd has to propitiate the tree spirits and water spirits the shepherd's prayer at the perilia is instructive because it gives us in short a view of the chief wants of the pastoral life the supplication for grass and leaves and water reminds us that the herdsman no less than husbandman depends ultimately on vegetation and rain so that the same divine powers which cover the fields of the one with the yellow corn may be conceived to carpet the meadows of the other with green grass and to diversify them with pools and rivers for the refreshment of the thirsty cattle and it has to be borne in mind that in countries where grass is less plentiful than under the raining skies of northern europe sheep goats and cattle still subsist in great measure on the leaves and juicy twigs of trees hence in these lands the pia shepherd and goat herd cannot afford to ignore or to offend the tree spirits on whose favour the bounty is flocks are dependent for much of their fodder 
Indeed, at the Perilia, the shepherd made elaborate excuses to these divine beings for any trespass he might unwittingly have committed on the hallowed domain by entering a sacred grove, sitting in the shadow of a holy tree, or lopping leafy branches from it with which to feed his sickly sheep. In like manner, he craved pardon of the warden nymphs if the hoofs of his cattle had stirred up the mud in their clear pools, and imported pails to intercede for him with the divinities of springs and the gods dispersed through every woodland glade. The Perilia was perhaps a time when the flocks and the herds were turned out for the first time in spring to graze in the open. The Perilia was generally considered to be the best time for coupling the rams and the ewes, and it has been suggested that it was also the season when the flocks and herds, after being folded and stored throughout the winter, were turned out for the first time to pasture in spring. The occasion is an anxious one for the shepherd, especially in countries which are infested with wolves, as ancient Italy was. Accordingly, the Italian shepherd propitiated pails with a slaughtered victim before he drove his flocks afield in spring. But it's doubtful whether this sacrifice formed part of the Perilia. None of the ancient authors who expressly described the Perilia mentioned the slaughter of a victim, and in Plutarch's day a tradition ran that of old no blood was shed at the festival. But such a tradition seems to point to a contrary practice in after times. In the absence of decisive evidence, the question must be left open. But modern analogy, as we shall see, strongly supports the opinion that immediately at the close of the Perilia, the flocks and herds were driven out to graze in the open pastures for the first time after their long winter confinement. On this view, a special significance is seen to attach to some of the features of the festival, such as the prayer for protection against the wolf, for the brute could hardly to the sheep and kind much harm so long as they were safely pent within the walls of the sheep coach and the cattle store. The Roman kings had perhaps to discharge some important religious functions at the Perilia. As the Perilia is said to have been celebrated by Romulus, his sacrifice to the gods and caused the people to purify themselves by leaping over flames, some scholars have inferred that it was customary for the king and afterwards for his successor, the chief pontiff, or the king of the sacred rites to offer sacrifices for the people at the Perilia. The inference is reasonable and receives some confirmation, as we shall see presently from the analogy of modern custom. Further, the tradition that Numa was born on the day of the Perilia may be thought to point in the same way, since it is most naturally explicable on the hypothesis that the king had to discharge some important function at the festival. Still, it must be confessed that the positive evidence for connecting the Roman kings with the celebration of the 21st of April is slight and dubious. The Perilia intended to ensure welfare of the cattle and guard them against witches and wolves. On the whole, the festival of the Perilia, which probably fell at or near the time of turning out the cattle to pasture in spring, was designed to ensure their welfare and increased and to guard them from the insidious machinations or the open attacks of their various enemies, among whom witches and wolves were perhaps the most dreaded. A celebration of the same sort is still held in Eastern Europe. On the 23rd of April, the Festival of St. George, the patron saint of cattle, horses and wolves. Now it can hardly be a mere coincidence that down to modern times the great popular festival of this sort has been celebrated only two days later by the herdsmen and shepherds of Eastern Europe who still cherish a profound belief in witchcraft and still fear, with far better reason, 
the raids of wolves on their flocks and herds. The festival falls on the 23rd of April and is dedicated to St. George, the patron saint of cattle, horses and wolves. The Estonians say that on St. George's morning, the wolf gets a ring round his snout and a halter about his neck, whereby he is rendered less dangerous to a Michaelmas. Precautions taken by the Estonians against wolves and witches on St. George's Day. But if the day should chance to be a Friday at full moon, where before the day came round, any person should have been so rash as to thump the dirty linen in the wash tub with two beetles, the cattle will run a serious risk of being devoured by wolves. Many are the precautions taken by the anxious Estonians on this day to guard their herds from the ravening beasts. Thus, some people gather wolves' dung on the preceding night, burn it, and fumigate the cattle with it in the morning, or they collect bones from the pastures and burn them at a crossroad, which serve as a charm against sickness, sorcery, and demons quite as well as against wolves. Others smoke the cattle with asafortida, or sulphur, to protect them against witchcraft and noxious exhalations. They think, too, that if you sow stitches on St. George's mornings, the cubs of the wolves will be blind. No doubt because their eyes are sewed up by the needle and thread. In order to forecast the fate of their herds, the peasants put eggs or a sharp weapon, such as an axe or a scythe, before the doors of the stalls, and the animal which crushes an egg or wounds itself will surely be rent by a wolf or will perish in some other fashion before the year is out. So certain is his fate that many a man prefers to slaughter the doomed beast out of hand for the sake of saving at least the beef. The Estonians generally drive their cattle out to pasture, for the first time was on George's Day. As a rule, the Estonians drive their cattle out to pasture, for the first time was on George's Day, and the herdsmen's duties begin from then. If, however, the herd should have been set out to graze before that day, the boys who look after them must eat neither flesh nor butter while they are on duty, else the wolves will destroy many sheep, and the cream will not turn to butter in the churn. Further, the boys may not kindle a fire in the wood, or the wolf's tooth would be fiery and he would bite viciously. By St. George's Day, the 23rd of April, there is commonly fresh grass in the meadows. But even if the spring should be late and the cattle should have to return to their stalls hungrier than they went forth, many Estonian farmers insist on turning out the poor beasts on St. George's Day in order that the saint may guard them against his creatures, the wolves. On this morning the farmer treats his herdsman to a dram of brandy and gives him two copper kopecks as tail money for every cow in the herd. This money the giver first passes thrice round his head and then lays it in the dunghill, for if the herdsman took it from his hand, it would in some way injure the herd. Were this ceremony omitted, the wolves would prove very destructive, because they had not been appeased on St. George's Day. After receiving the tail money, some herdsmen are wont to collect the herd on the village common. Here they set up their cook in the ground, place their hat on it, and walk thrice round the cattle, muttering spells or Lord's Prayer as they do so. Pastoral crook should be cut from the rowan or mountain ash, and consecrated by a wise man who carves mystic signs on it. Sometimes the upper end of the crook is hollowed out and filled with quicksilver and asa fortida, the aperture being stopped up with resin. Some Asunians cut a grass with a scythe under the door through which the herd is to be driven, and fill the furrows of the cross with salt to rent certain evil beings from harming the cattle. Further, it is an almost universal custom in Estonia not to hang bells on the necks of the kind till St. George's Day. 
the few who can give a reason for this say that the chiming of the bells before this season would attract the wild beasts sacrifices for horses offered on st george's day by Hersonian of dago in the island of dago down to the early part of the nineteenth century there were certain holy trees from which no one dared to break a bough in spite of the lack of wood in the island the fallen branches were allowed to rot in heaps on the ground under such trees the estonians used to offer sacrifices on st george's day for the safety and welfare of their horses the offerings which consist of an egg a piece of money and a bunch of horsehair tied up with a red thread were buried in the earth the custom is interesting because it exhibits st george in the twofold character of a patron of horses and of trees in the latter capacity he is already a menace more than once under the name of green george st george as the patron of wolves and cattle in russia the herds are driven out to pasture for the first time on his day in russia the saint is known as Igori or yuri and here as in estonia he is a patron of wolves as well as of flocks and herds many legends speak of the connection which exists between st george and the wolf in little russia the beast is known as st george's dog and the carcasses of sheep which wolves have killed are not eaten for it being held that they have been made over by divine command to the beasts of the field the festival of st george on the twenty-third of april has a national as well as an ecclesiastical character in russia and the mythical feature of the songs which are devoted to the day prove that the saint has supplanted some old slavonian deity who used to be honoured at this season in heathen times it is not as a slayer of dragons and a champion of forlorn damsels that st george figures in these songs but as a patron of farmers and herdsmen who preserve cattle from harm and on whose day according the flocks and herds are driven out to browse the fresh pastures for the first time after they are confined through the long russian winter what the wolf holds in his teeth the yegory has given is a proverb which shows how completely he is thought to rule over the fold and the stall here is one of the songs we have gone around the field we have called yegory o thou our brave yegory save our cattle in the field and beyond the field in the forest and beyond the forest under the bright moon under the red sun from the rapacious wolf from the cruel bear from the cunning beast a white russian song represents st george as opening with golden keys probably the sunbeams the soil which has been frostbound all the winter holy jury the divine envoy has gone to god and having taken the golden keys has unlocked the moist earth having scattered the clean dew over white russia and all the world in moravia they meet the spring with a song in which they ask green thursday that is the day before good friday what he has done with the keys and he answers i gave them to st george st george arose and unlocked the earth so the grass grew the green grass in white russia it is customary on st george's day to drive the cattle afield through the morning dew and in little russia and bulgaria young folk go out early and roll themselves in it in the smallest government on this day the cattle are driven out first to the rye fields and then to the pastures a religious service is held in the stores before the departure of the herd and afterwards in the field where the stool which supported the holy pitcher is allowed to stand for several weeks till the next possession with the pictures of the saints takes place st george's day in this government is a herdsman's festival and it is the term from which their engagements are dated 
and in the smallest government when the herds are being sent out to graze on st george's day the following spell is uttered deaf man deaf man dost thou hear us i hear not god grant that the wolf may not hear our cattle cripple cripple canst thou catch us i cannot catch god grant the wolf may not catch our cattle blind man blind man dost thou see us i see not god grant the wolf may not see our cattle in russia which is tried to steal the milk of the cattle on the eve of st george but in the opinion of the russian peasant wolves are not the only foes of cattle at this season on the eve of st george's day as well as on the night before wet sunday and on midsummer eve witches go out naked in the dark and cut chips from the doors and gates of farmyards these they boil in a milk pail and thus charm away the milk from the farms hence careful housewives examine their doors and smear mud in any fresh gashes they may find in them which frustrates the knavish tricks of the milk-stealing witch not to be baffled however the witches climb the wooden crosses by the wayside and chip splinters from them or lay their hands on stray wooden wedges these they stick into a post in the cattle shed and squeeze them with their hands till milk flows from them as freely as from the dugs of a cow at this time also wicked women turn themselves by magic art into dogs and black cats and in that disguise they suck the milk of cows mares and ears while they slaughter the bulls horses and rams st george's day among the ruthenians the ruthenians of bukowina and galicia believe that at midnight before st george's day the twenty-third of april which comes in bands of twelve to the hills at the boundaries of the villages and there dance and play with fire moreover they cull on the mountains the herbs they need for their infernal enchantments like the estonians and the russians the ruthenians drive their cattle out to pasture for the first time on st george's day hence during the preceding night the witches are very busy casting their spells on the cows and the farmers have great pains to defeat their fell purpose with this intent many people catch a snake skin it and fumigate the cows with the skin on the eve of the saint's day to rub the udders and horns of the cows with serpent's fat is equally effective others stew meals about the animals saying not till thou hast gathered up this meal shalt thou take the milk from my cow so and so further sods of turf with thorn branches stuck in them are laid on the gate-posts and crosses are painted with tar on the doors these precautions keep the witches from the cows if however a beast should after all be bewitched the farmer's wife drags a rope about in the dew on the morning of st george's day then she chops it up small mixes salt with it and scatters the bits among the cow's fodder no sooner has the afflicted animal partaken of this compound than the spell is broken st george's day among the hussars of the carpathians the hussars of the carpathian mountains believe that when a cow gives milk tinged with blood or no milk at all a witch is the cause of it these maleficent beings play their pranks especially on the eve of st george's day and on midsummer eve but they are most dangerous at the former season for that night they and their foul fiends hold their greatest gathering or sabas to steal the cow's milk they resort to various devices sometimes they run about in the shape of dogs and smell the cow's odors sometimes they rub the udders of their own cows with milk taken from a neighbour's kind then their own cows yield abundant milk but the udders of the neighbour's cows shrivel up or give only blood others again make a wooden cow on the spot where the real cows are generally milked 
taking care to stick into the ground the knife they used in carving the image then the wooden cow yields the witch or the milk of the cattle which are commonly milked there while the owner of the beast gets nothing but blood from them precautions taken by the hulzels against the witches who try to steal milk on the avis and george hence the hulzels take steps to guard their cows from the machinations of witches at this season for this purpose they kindle a great fire before the house on the eve of st george's day using as fuel the dung which has accumulated during the winter also they place on the gateposts clods in which are stuck the branches consecrated on palm sunday or boughs of the silver poplar the wood of which is deemed especially efficacious in banning fiends moreover they make crosses on the doors sprinkle the cows with mud and fumigate them with incense or the skin of a snake to tie red woolen threads round the necks or tails of the animals is also a safeguard against witchcraft and in june when the snow is melted and the cattle are led to the high mountain pastures the herds have no sooner reached their summer quarters than the herdsman makes living fire by the friction of wood and drives the animals over the ashes in order to protect them against witches and other powers of evil the fire thus kindled is kept constantly burning in the herdsman's hut till with the chill of autumn the time comes to drive the herds down the mountains again if the fire went out in the interval it would be an ill omen for the owner of the pastures sacrifice for horses in silesia on st george's day in some parts of silesia the might of the witches is believed to be at the highest pitch on st george's day the people deem the saint very powerful in the matter of cattle breeding and especially of horse breeding and the polish village of ostropa not far from glywitz a sacrifice for horses used to be offered at the little village church it has been described by an eyewitness peasants on horseback streamed to the spot from all the neighbouring villages not with the staid and solemn pace of pilgrims but with the noise and clatter of merrymakers hastening to a revel the sorry image of a saint carved in wood and about an ell high stood in the churchyard on a table covered with a white cloth it represented him seated on horseback and spearing the dragon beside it were two vessels to receive offerings of money and eggs respectively as each farmer galloped up he dismounted led his horse by the bridle knelt before the image of the saint and prayed after that he made his offering of money or eggs according to his means in the name of his horse then he led the beast round the church and churchyard tethered it and went into the church to hear mass and a sermon having thus paid his devotions to the saint every man leaped into the saddle and made for the nearest public house as fast as his horse could lay legs on the ground festival st george as a patron of horses at Adringen in bavaria at Adringen in south bavaria there is a chapel of st george where a festival of the saint used to be held on april the twenty fourth down at the beginning of the nineteenth century from the whole neighbourhood people streamed thither on horseback and in wagons to take part in the ceremony more than fourteen hundred riders are said to have been present on one occasion the foundation of the chapel was attributed to the monastery of holy cross vale heilig Krustau, and the abbot and prior with their suit attended the festival in state mounted on white horses a burgher in Entrungen had to ride as patron in the costume of St. George, whom he represented. He alone bestrode a fiery stallion. After the celebration of High Mass, the horses were blessed at the chapel. Then the procession of men on horseback moved round the common lands, winding up at the parish church, where it broke up. In many villages near Feyberg, in Baden, 
st george is the patron of horses and in some parts of baden the saint's day april the twenty-third is a season when cattle are driven out to pasture for the first time in spring st george's day among the saxons and romanians of transylvania the saxons of transylvania think that on the eve of st george's day the witch rides on the backs of the cows into the farmyard if branches of wild rose bushes or other thorny shrubs are not struck over the gate of the yard to keep them out beliefs and practices of this sort are shared by the romanians of transylvania they hold that on st george's day the witches keep their sabbath in sequestered spots such as woodland glades deserted farmsteadings and the like in wallachia green sods are laid on the window sills and on the lintels of the doors to avert the uncanny crew but in transylvania the romanians not content with setting a thorn bush in the doorway of the house keep watch and ward all night beside the cattle or elsewhere to catch the witches who are at work stealing the milk from the cows here as elsewhere the day is above all the herdsmen's festival it marks the beginning of spring the shepherds are preparing to start for the distant pastures and listen for their ears to some wise acre who tells them how if the milk should fail in the udders of the sheep they have only to thrash a shepherd's pouch and every stroke will fall on the witch who is pumping the lost milk into her pails st george's day the herdsman's festival among the wallachians the wallachians look on st george's day as very holy for they are mainly a pastoral folk on st george is a patron of herds and herdsmen on that day also as well as on the day before and the day after the wallachian numbers this herd beginning at one and counting continuously up to the total this he never does at any other time of the year on this day too he milks his sheep at the first time into vessels which have been carefully scaled and a wreath with flowers then to a cake of white meal is baked in the shape of a ring and is rolled on the ground in sight of the herd and from the length of its course omens are drawn as to the good or bad luck of the cattle in their summer pastures if the herd is owned by several men they afterwards lay hold of the ring and break it among them and when it gets the largest piece will have the best luck the milk is made into cheese which is divided and the pieces of the cake are given to the shepherds in like manner the wreaths of flowers which crown the pails are thrown into the water and from the way in which they float downstream the shepherds presage good or evil fortune st george's day among the bulgarians and south slavs the bulgarians seem to share the belief that cattle are especially exposed to the machinations of witches at this season for it is a rule with them not to give away milk butter or cheese on the eve of st george's day to do so they say would be to give away the profit or the milch kine they rise very early in the morning of this day and wash themselves in the dew that they may be healthy it is said too that a regular sacrifice is still offered on st george's day in bulgaria an old man kills a ram while girls spread grass on which the blood is poured forth the intention of the sacrifice may be to make the herbage grow abundantly in the pastures amongst the south slavs the twenty-third of april st george's day is the chief festival of the spring herdsman thinks that if his cattle are well on that day they will thrive throughout the year as we have already seen he crowns the horns of his cows with garlands of flowers to guard them against witchcraft in the evening the garlands are hung on the doors of the stalls where they remain till the next st george's day early in the morning of that day when the herdsman drives the cows from the byres the housewife takes salt in one hand and a potsherd with glowing coals in the other she offers the salt to the cow and the beast must step over the smouldering coals on which various kinds of roses are smoking 
This deprives the witches of all power to harm a cow. On the eve or the morning of the day, old women cut thistles and fasten them to the doors and gates of the farm, and they make crosses with cow's dung on the doors of the byres to ward off the witches. Precautions taken against witchcraft by the South Slazons on George's Day. Many knock great nails into the doors, which is thought to be a superventive even than thistles. In certain districts, the people cut thistles before sunrise and put them on each other's heads. Some of the fences, the windows, the doors, and some in the shape of wreaths round the necks of the cows, in order that witches may be powerless to harm man and beast, cows and homestead throughout the year. If nevertheless a witch should contrive to steal through the garden fence and into the byre, it is all over with the cows. A good housewife will go round her house and cattle stores early in the morning of the fateful day and sprinkle them with holy water. Another approved means of driving the witches away is furnished by the froth which is shot from the spokes of a revolving mill-wheel. For common sense tells us that just as a froth flies from the wheel, so the witches will fly from their house, if only we apply the remedy in the right way. And the right way is this. On the eve of St. George's Day, you must send a child to fetch froth from the mill, three stones from three crossroads, three twigs of a blackberry bush, three sprigs of beech, and three shoots of a wild vine. Then you insert the plants in a buttered roll, put the stones in the fire, boil the froth, toast a buttered roll over the glowing stones, and spake these words. The blackberry twigs gather together, the beeches pull together, and the foam from the wheel shakes all evil away. Do this, and you may take my word for it, that no wish will be able to charm away the milk from your cows. Precaution of the same sort are taken against wolves and winches, whenever their cattle are driven out to pasture for the first time in spring. Thus on the whole, the festival of St. George of the present day, like the Perilio of Asian Italy, is a ceremony intended to guard the cattle against their real and their imaginary foes, the wolves and the witches, at the critical season when the flocks and herds are driven out to pasture for the first time in spring. Precautions of the same sort are naturally taken by the superstitious herdsman whenever the winter being over, he turns his herds out into the open for the first time, whether it be on St. George's Day or not. Thus in Prussia and Lithuania, when the momentous morning broke, the herd boy ran from house to house in the village, knocked at the windows and cried, Put out the fire, spin not, reel not, but drive the cattle out. Meantime the herdsman had fetched sand from the church, which he strewed on the road by which the beast must go from the farmyard. At the same time he laid a woodcutter's axe in every doorway, with a sharp edge upwards, over which the cows had to sleep. Then he walked in front of them, speaking never a word, and paying no heed to the herd, which was kept together by the herd boys alone. His thoughts were occupied by higher things, for he was busy making crosses, blessing the cattle, and murmuring prayers, till the pastures were reached. The axe in the doorway signified that the wolf should flee from the herd, as from the sharp edge of the axe. The sand from the church betoked that the cattle should be dispensed and water in the meadows, which would keep as close together as people in church. Swedish observances at turning out the cattle to graze after their winter confinement. In Sweden, the cattle are confined almost wholly to their stalls during the long and dreary northern winter, and the first day in spring on which they are turned out in the forest glaze has been, from time immemorial, a great popular festival. The time of its celebration depends, more or less, on the mildness and severity of the season. 
for the most part it takes place about the middle of may on the preceding evening bonfires are kindled everywhere in the forest but so far as their flickering light extends the cattle will be safe from the attacks of wild beasts throughout the summer for the same reason people go about the woods that night firing guns blowing horns and making all kinds of discordant noises the mode of celebrating the festival which in some places is called the feast of flowers varies somewhat in different provinces in dull's land the cattle are driven home from that day from pasture at noon instead of that evening early in the morning the herd boy repairs with the herd to the forest where he decks their horns with wreaths of flowers and provides himself with a wand of the rowan or mountain ash during his absence the girls pluck flowers weave them into a garland and hang it on the gate through which the cattle must pass on their return from the forest swedish observances at turning out the cattle pasture for the first time in summer when they come back the herd boy takes the garland from the gate fastens it to the top of the wand and marches with it at the head of his beasts to the hamlet afterwards the wand with the garland on it is set up in the muck heap where it remains all the summer the intention of these ceremonies is not said but on the analogy of the preceding customs we may conjecture both the flowers and the rowan wand are supposed to guard the cattle against witchcraft a little later in the season when the grass is well grown in the forest most of the cattle are sent away to the seter or summer pastures which every hamlet commonly has one or more these are clearings in the woods and may be many miles distant from the village in delicatelia the departure usually takes place in the first week in june it is a great event for the pastoral folk an instinctive longing seems to awaken both in the people and the beasts the preparations of the women are accompanied by the bleating of the sheep and goats and the lowing of the cattle which make incessant efforts to break through the pens near the house where they are shut up two or more girls according to the size of the herd attend the cattle on their migration and stay with them all the summer every animal as it goes forth whether cow sheep or goat is marked on the brow with a cross by means of a tar brush in order to protect it against evil spirits but more dangerous foes lie in wait for the cattle in the distant pastures where bears and wolves not uncommonly rush forth on them from the woods on such occasions the herd girls often display the utmost gallantry bella bowering the ferocious beasts with sticks and risking their own lives in defence of the herds these modern parallels throw light on some of the features of the parilia the foregoing customs practised down to modern times by shepherds and herdsmen with a full sense of their meaning throw light on some features of the parilia which might otherwise remain obscure they seem to show that when the italian shepherd hung green boughs on his folds the garlands on his doors he did so in order to keep the witches from the ewes then in fumigating his flocks with sulphur and driving them over a fire of straw he sought to interpose a fiery barrow between them and the powers of evil whether these were conceived as witches or mischievous spirits green george personification of a spirit of trees or of vegetation in general but st george is more of a patron of cattle the mummer who dresses up in green boughs on the saint's day and goes by the name of green george clearly personifies the saint himself and such a disguise is appropriate only to his spirit of trees or a vegetation in general as if to make this quite clear the slabs of carinthia carry a tree decked with flowers in the procession in which green george figures and the ceremonies in which the leaf-clad masker takes a part plainly indicate that he is thought to stand in intimate connection with rain as well as with cattle 
his counterpart of our jack in the green is known in some parts of russia and the slovens call him green george dressed in leaves and flowers he appears in public on george's day carrying a lighted torch in one hand and a pie in the other thus arrayed he goes out to the cornfields followed by girls who sing appropriate songs a circle of brushwood is then lighted and the pie is set in the middle of it all who share in the ceremony sit down around the fire and the pie is divided among them the observance as perhaps a bearing on the cattle as well as on the cornfields for in some parts of russia when the herds go out to graze for the first time in spring a pie baked in the form of a sheep is cut up by the chief herdsman and the bits are kept as a cure for the ills to which sheep are subject ringing out the grass on st george's day at Schwaz, an old Tyrolese town in the lower valley of the inn young lads assemble on st george's day which is here the twenty fourth of april and having provided themselves with bells both large and small they go in procession ringing them in the various farms of the neighbourhood where they are welcomed and given milk to drink these processions which take place in other parts of the tyrol also go by the name of ringing out the grass Gressorslotten, and it is believed that wherever the bell ringers come there the grass grows and the crops will be abundant this beneficial effect appears to be ascribed to the power of the bells to disperse the evil spirits which are thought to be rampant on st george's day for the same purpose of averting demonic influence at this time people in salzburg and the neighbouring districts of upper austria go in procession round the fields and stick palm branches or small crosses in them also they fasten branches of the pronas padas l at the windows of the houses and cattle stalls in some parts of germany the farmer looks to the height of his corn on st george's day expecting that it should be high enough to hide a cow st george supposed to get barren women with child even when we have said that st george of eastern europe represents an old heathen deity of sheep cattle horses wolves vegetation and rain we have not exhausted all the provinces of which he is supposed to bear sway according to an opinion which appears to be widely spread he has the power of blessing barren windward offspring this belief is clearly at the root of the self-slavonian custom described above whereby a childless woman hopes to become a mother by wearing a shirt which has hung all night on a fruitful tree on st george's eve similarly a bulgarian wife who desires to have a child will strike off a serpent's head on st george's day put a bean in its mouth and lay on the head in a hollow tree or bear it in the earth at a spot not far from the village that the cowing of the cocks cannot be heard there if the being buds her wishes will be granted love charms practised among the slaves on st george's day it is natural to suppose that a saint who can bestow offspring can also bring fond lovers together hence among the slaves with whom st george is so popular his day is one of the seasons at which youths and maidens resort to charms and divination in order to win or discover the affections of the other sex thus to take examples a bohemian way of gaining a girl's love is as follows you catch a frog as on george's day wrap it in a white cloth and put it in an ant hill after sunset or about midnight the creature croaks terribly while the ants are gnawing the flesh from its bones when silence reigns again you will find nothing left of the frog but one little bone in the shape of a hook and another little bone in the shape of a shell take the hood-shaped bone go to the girl of your choice and hook her dress with the bone and she will fall over head and ears in love with you if you afterwards tire of her you have only to touch her with a shovel-shaped bone and her affection will vanish as quickly as it came 
again at Keklinge in Krangora, bade us go at break of day on St. George's morning to a well to draw water, and look down into its dark depth till tears fill their eyes, and they fancy they see in the water the image of their future husband. At Krajina, in Serbia, girls who would pry into the book of fate gather flowers in the meadows on the eve of St. George, make them up into nosegays, and give to the nosegays the names of the various lads whose hearts they would win. Late at night they place the flowers by a stealth of the open sky, on the roof or elsewhere, and leave them there till daybreak. The lad on whose nosegay most dew has fallen will love the girl most truly throughout the year. Sometimes mischievous young men secretly watch these doings, and steal the bunches of flowers, which makes sore hearts among the girls. Once more in wooded districts of Bohemia, a Czech maiden will sometimes go out on St. George's Eve into an oak or beech forest and catch a young wild pigeon. It may be a ring dove or a wood pigeon, but it must always be a male. She takes the bird home with her and carves it with a sieve or shuts it up in a box that nobody may know what she is about. Having kept and fed it till it can fly, she rises very early in the morning while the household is still asleep and goes with the dove to the hearth. Here she presses the bird thrice to her bare breast above her heart and then lets it fly away up the chimney while she says, Out of the chimney, dove, fly, fly from here. Take me, dear Hans, my love, none, none so dear. Fly to your rocks, fair dove, fly to your lee. So may I get my love, none, none but thee. St. George in Syria esteemed a giver of offspring to childless women. In the East, also, St. George is reputed to be a giver of offspring to barren women, and in this character he is revered by Muslims as well as Christians. His shrines may be found in all parts of Syria. More places are associated with him than any other saint in the calendar. The most famous of his sanctuaries is a Kalat el Hosen in northern Syria. Childless women of all sects resort to it in order that the saint may remove their reproach. Some people shrug their shoulders when the shrine is mentioned in this connection. Yet many Mohammedan women who desired offspring used to repair to it with the full consent of their husbands. Nowadays the true character of the place is beginning to be perceived, and many Muslims have forbidden their wives to visit it. The Syrians and George may represent Tamaz. Such beliefs and practices lend some colour to the theory that in the East the saint has taken the place of Tamaz or Adonis. In Europe, St. George seems to have displaced an older young god of the spring, such as Lithuanian Begrubius. But we cannot suppose that the worship of Tamaz has been transplanted to Europe and struck its roots deep among the Slavs and other peoples in the eastern parts of our continent. Rather, amongst them, we must look for a native Arian deity who now masquerades in the costume of the Cappadocian saint, Amateur St. George. Perhaps we may find him in the Pergrubius of the Lithuanians, a people who retained their heathen religion later than any other branch of the Aryan stock in Europe. This Pergrubius is described as the god of the spring, as he who makes leaves and grass to grow, or more fully as a god of flowers, plants, and all buds. On St. George's Day, the 23rd of April, the heathen Prussians and Lithuanians offered a sacrifice to Pergrubius, a priest who bore the title of Wershate, held in his hand a mug of beer, while he thus addressed the deity, Thou divest away the winter, thou bring us back the pleasant spring. By thee the fields and gardens are green, by thee the groves and the woods have put forth leaves. 
According to another version, the prayer ran as follows. Thou drivest winter away, and givest all the lands, leaves, and grass. We pray thee, and thou wouldst make all our corn to grow, and wouldst put down all weeds. After praying thus, the priest drank the beer, holding the mug with his teeth, but not touching it with his hands. Then, without handling it, he threw the mug backward over his head. Afterwards, it was picked up and filled again, and all present drank out of it. They also sang a hymn in praise of Petruvius, and then spent the whole day in feasting and dancing, as it appears that Petruvius was a Lithuanian god of the spring, who caused the grass and the corn to grow, and the trees to burst in a leaf. In this he resembles Green George, the embodiment of the fresh vegetation of spring, whose leaf-clad representative still plays his pranks on the very same day in some parts of Eastern Europe. Nothing indeed is said of the relation of Pecrubius to cattle, and so far the analogy between him and St. George breaks down. But our accounts of the old Lithuanian mythology are few and scanty. If we knew more about Pecrubius, we might find that, as a god or personification of spring, he, like St. George, was believed to exert all the quickening powers of that genial season. In other words, that his beneficial activity was not confined to clothing the bare earth with verdure, but extended to the care of the taming flocks and herds, as well as to the propagation of mankind. Certainly it is not easy to draw a sharp line of division between the god who attends to cattle and the god who provides the few on which they subsist. The Roman equivalent of St. George was Pales, who may have been personated by the king at the Perilia. Thus, Pecrubius may perhaps have been the northern equivalent of the pastoral god Pales, who was worshipped by the Romans only two days earlier at the spring festival of Perilia. It will be remembered that the Roman shepherds prayed to Pales for grass and leaves, the very things which it was the part of Pecrubius to supply. Is it too bold to conjecture that in rural districts of Italy, Pales may have been personated by a leaf-clad man, and that in the early age of Rome, the duty of thus representing the god may have been one of the sacred functions of the king. The conjecture at least suggests a reason for the tradition that Numa, the typical priestly king of Rome, was born on the day of the Perilia. End of section 16section seventeen of the golden bough part one the magic art and the evolution of kings volume two by sir james george fraser this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recorded by leon harvey chapter twenty the worship of the oak part one the diffusion of the oak in europe Latin kings represented Jupiter, the god of the oak, the sky, the thunder, and the rain. In a preceding chapter, some reasons were given for thinking that the early Latin kings posed as living representatives of Jupiter, the god of the oak, the sky, the rain, and the thunder, and that in this capacity they attempted to exercise the fertilizing functions which were ascribed to the god. The probability of this view will be strengthened if it can be proved that the same god was worshipped under other names by other branches of the Aryan stock in Europe, and that the Latin kings were not alone in arrogating to themselves his powers and attributes. In this chapter I propose briefly to put together a few of the principal facts which point to this conclusion. Why should the god of the oak be also the god of the sky, the thunder and the rain? 
but at the outset a difficulty presents itself to us the oak the sky the rain and the thunder appear things totally distinct from each other how did our forefathers come to group them together and imagine them as attributes of one and the same god the connection may be seen between the sky the rain and the thunder but what has any of them to do with the oak yet one of these apparently disparate elements was probably the original nucleus round which in time the others gathered and crystallized into the composite conception of jupiter accordingly we may ask which of them was the original centre of attraction if men started with the idea of an oak god how can they to enlarge his kingdom by annexing to it the province of the sky the rain and the thunder if on the other hand they set out with the notion of a god of the sky the rain and the thunder or any one of them why should they have attributed the oak to his attributes the oak is terrestrial the sky the thunder and the rain are celestial or aerial what is the bridge between the two in the composite character of jupiter the oak is probably primary the sky the rain and the thunder secondary and derivative in the sequel i shall endeavour to show that on the principle of primitive thought the evolution of a sky god from an oak god is more easily conceivable than the converse and if i succeed it becomes probable that in the composite character of jupiter the oak is primary and original the sky the rain and the thunder secondary and derivative europe covered with vast oak forests in prehistoric times we have seen that long before the dawn of history europe was covered with vast primeval woods which must have exercised a profound influence on the thought as well as on the life of our rude ancestors who dwelt dispersed under the gloomy shadow or in the open glades and clearings of the forest now of all the trees which compose these woods the oak appears to have been both the commonest and the most useful the proof of this is drawn partially from the statements of classical writers partially from the remains of ancient villages built on piles and lakes and marshes and partially from the oak forests which have been found embedded in peat bogs remains of oak forests found in peat bogs these bogs which attain their greatest development in northern europe but are met with also in the central and southern parts of the continent and preserved as a museum the trees and plants which sprang up and flourished after the end of the glacial epoch thus in scotland the peat which occupies wide areas both in the highlands and lowlands almost everywhere covers the remains of forests among which the commoner trees are pine oak and birch the oaks are of great size and are found at heights above the sea such as the tree would not now naturally attain to equally remarkable for their size are the pines but though they also had a wider distribution than at present they appear not to have formed any extensive forests to the lowest levels of the country still remains of them have been dug up in many lowland peat mosses where the bulk of the buried timber is oak when hatfield moss in yorkshire was drained there were found in it trunks of oak a hundred feet long and as black as ebony one giant actually measured a hundred and twenty feet in length with a diameter of twelve feet at the root and six feet at the top no such tree now exists in europe sunken forests and peat occur in many places on the coasts of england especially on low shelving shores where the land falls away with a gentle slope to the sea these submerged areas were once mud flats which as the sea retreated from them gradually became clothed with dense forests chief of oak and scotch fir though ash yew alder and other trees sooner or later mingled with them the great peat bogs of ireland show that there was a time 
when vast woods of oak and yew covered the country, the oak growing on the hills up to a height of four hundred feet or thereabout above the sea, while at higher levels still with the prevailing timber. Human relics have often been discovered in these Irish bogs, and ancient railways made of oak have also come to light. In the peat bog near Aberville, in the valley of the Somme, trunks of oak have been dug up fourteen feet thick, a diameter rarely met with outside the tropics in the old continent. Former Oak Woods of Denmark and Scandinavia At present the woods of Denmark consist for the most part of magnificent beeches, which flourish here as luxuriantly as anywhere in the world. Oaks are much rarer and appear to be on the decline. Yet the evidence of the peat bogs proves that before the advent of the beech, the country was overspread with dense forests of tall and stately oaks. It was during the ascendancy of the oak in the woods that bronze seemed to have become known in Denmark, for swords and shields of that metal now, in the Museum of Copenhagen, have been taken out of peat in which oaks abound. Yet at a still earlier period the oak has been preceded by the pine or scotch fir in the Danish forests, and the discovery of Neolithic implements in the peat bogs shows that savages of the Stone Age had their homes in these old pine woods as well as in the latter forests of oak. Some antiquaries are of opinion that the Iron Age in Denmark began with the coming of the beech, but of this there is no evidence. For aught we know to the contrary, the beautiful beech forests may date back to the Age of Bronze. The peat bogs in Norway abound in buried timber, and in many of them the trees occur in two distinct layers. The lower of these layers consists chiefly of oak, hazel, ash, and other deciduous trees. The upper is composed of scotch firs and birches. In the bogs of Sweden also, the oak forests underlie the pine forests. However, it appears to be doubtful whether Scandinavia was inhabited in the age of the oak woods. Neolithic tools have indeed been found in the peat, but generally not deeper down than two feet or so. Hence, one antiquary infers that in these bogs, no more than two feet of peat has formed within historical times. But negative evidence on such a point goes for little, as only a small portion of the bogs can have been explored. The ancient lake dwellings of Europe were built to a great extent on oaken piles. Unequivocal proof of the prevalence of the oak and its usefulness to man in early times is furnished by the remains of the pile villages which have been discovered in many of the lakes of Europe. In the British islands, the piles and the platforms on which these cranogs or lake dwellings rested appear to have been generally of oak, though fir, birch and other trees were sometimes used in their construction. Speaking of the Irish and Scotch cranogs, a learned antiquary remarks, every variety of structure observed in the one country is to be found in the other, from the purely artificial island framed of oaken beams, more ties together, to the natural island, artificially fortified or enlarged by girdles of oak piles or ramparts of loose stones. Canoes hollowed out of trunks of oak have been found both in the Scotch and in the Irish cranogs. In the lake dwellings of Switzerland and Central Europe, the piles are very often of oak, but by no means as uniformly so as in the British islands. Fir, birch, alder, ash, elm, and other timber were also employed for the purpose. That the inhabitants of these villages subsisted partially on the produce of the oak, even after they had adopted agriculture, is proved by the acorns which have been found in their dwellings, along with wheat, barley, and millet, as well as beech nuts, hazelnuts, and the remains of chestnuts and cherries. The inhabitants of the lake dwellings subsisted partially on acorns. 
In the Valley of the Po, the framework of logs and planks which supports the prehistoric villages is most commonly of elm wood, but evergreen oak and chestnut were also used, and the abundance of oaks is attested by the great quantities of acorns which were dug up in these settlements. As the acorns were sometimes found stored in earthenware vessels, it appears they were eaten by the people as well as by their pigs. Evidence of Classical Writers as to the Oak Forests of Europe The evidence of classical writers proves that great oak forests still existed down to their time in various parts of Europe. Thus, Veneti, on the Atlantic coast of Brittany, made their flat-bottomed boats out of oak timber, of which we are told there was abundance in their country. The Oak Woods of Germany Pliny informs us that, while the whole of Germany was covered with cool and shady woods, the loftiest trees were to be seen not far from the country of the Chalki, who inhabited the coast of the North Sea. Among these giants of the forest he speaks especially of the oaks, which grew on the banks of the two lakes. When the waves had undermined their roots, the oaks are said to have torn away great portions of the bank and floated like islands on the lakes. The same writer speaks of the vast Hercynian wood of Germany as an oak forest, old as the world, untouched for ages, and passing wonderful in its immortality. So huge were the trees, he says, that when their roots met, they were forced up above ground in the shape of arches, through which a troop of horse could ride as through an open gate. His testimony as to the kind of trees which composed this famous forest is confirmed by its name, which seems to mean no more than oak wood. The Oak Woods of Ancient Italy and Greece In the second century before our era, oak forests were still so common in the valley of the Po that the herds of swine which browsed on the acorns sufficed to supply the greater part of the demand for pork throughout Italy, although nowhere in the world, according to Polybius, there were more pigs butchered to feed the gods, the people, and the army. Elsewhere, the same historian describes the immense herds of swine which roamed the Italian oak forests, especially on the coast of Tuscany and Lombardy. In order to sort out the different droves when they mingled with each other in the woods, each swineherd carried a horn, and when he wound a blast on it, all his own pigs came trooping to him with such vehemence that nothing could stop them, for all the herds knew the note of their own horn. In the oak forests of Greece this device was unknown, and the swineherds there had harder work to come by their own when the beasts had strayed far in the woods, as they were apt to do in autumn while the acorns were falling. Down to the beginning of our era, oak woods were interspersed among the olive groves and vineyards of the Sabine country in central Italy. Among the beautiful woods which clothed the Horatian mountains in Sicily, the oaks were particularly remarked for their stately growth and the great size of their acorns. In the second century after Christ, the oak forests of Arcadia still harboured wild boars, bears, and huge tortoises in the dark recesses. The oak still the chief forest tree of Europe. Even now the predominance of the oak as a principal forest tree of Europe has hardly passed away. Thus we are told that among the leaf-bearing trees of Greece, as opposed to their conifers, the oak still plays by far the most important part in regard both to the number of the individuals and the number of the species. And the British oak in particular, Quercus wilbur, is yet the prevailing tree in most of the woods of France, Germany and southern Russia, while in England the coppice and the few fragments of natural forest still left are mainly composed of this species. 
In Europe, acorns have been used as human food both in ancient and modern times. Thus the old classical tradition that men lived upon acorns before they learned to till the ground may very well be founded on fact. Indeed, acorns were still an article of diet in southern parts of southern Europe within historical times. Speaking of the prosperity of the righteous, Hesiod declares that for them the earth bears much substance, and the oak on the mountains puts forth acorns. The Arcadians in their oak forests were proverbial for eating acorns, but not the acorns of all oaks, only those of a particular sort. Pliny tells us that in his day acorns still constituted the wealth of many nations, and that in time of dearth they were ground and baked into bread. According to Strabo, the mountaineers of Spain subsisted on acorn bread for two-thirds of the year, and in that country acorns were served up as a special course even at the meals of the well-to-do. Acorns as food in modern Europe In the same regions, the same practice has survived in modern times. The commonest and finest oak of modern Greece is Aquaticus agilops, with a beautiful crown of leaves, and the peasants eat its acorns, both roasted and raw. The sweeter acorns of the Aquaticus balota also serve them as food, especially in Arcadia. In Spain, people eat the acorns of the evergreen oak, Quercus alex, which are known as belotas, and are said to be much larger and more succulent than the produce of the British oak. The Duchess in Don Quixote writes to Sancho's wife to send her some of them, but oaks are now few and far between in La Mancha. Even in England and France, acorns have been boiled and eaten by the poor as a substitute for bread in time of dearth, and naturally the use of acorns as food for swine has also lasted in two modern times. It is on acorns that those hogs are fattened in Estremadura, which makes a famous Montancho's hams. Large herds of swine and all the great oak woods of Germany depend on acorns for their autumn subsistence. And in the remaining royal forests of England, it happens that the neighbouring villages still claim their ancient right of panage, turning their hogs into the woods in October and November. Part 2. The Aryan God of the Oak and the Thunder The many benefits received by the ancient Aryans from the oak naturally led them to worship the tree. Thus we may conclude that the primitive Aryans of Europe lived among oak woods, used oak sticks for the lighting of their fires and oak timber for the construction of their villages, their roads, their canoes, fed their swine on acorns, and themselves subsisted in part on the same simple diet. No wonder, then, if the tree of which they received so many benefits should play an important part in their religion and should be invested with a sacred character. The worship of the tree itself gradually grew into a worship of the god of the tree, but no sharp line of distinction can be drawn between the two. We have seen that the worship of trees has been worldwide, and that beginning with a simple reverence and dread of the tree itself, animated by a powerful spirit, it has gradually grown into a cult of tree gods and tree goddesses, who with the advance of thought become more and more detached from their old home in the trees, and assume the character of Sylvian deities and powers of fertility in general, to whom the husbandman looks not merely for the prosperity of his crops, but for the fecundity of his cattle and his women. Where this evolution has taken place, it has necessarily been slow and long. There is convenient to distinguish it in theory between the worship of trees and the worship of gods of the trees, it is impossible to draw a hard and fast line between them in practice, and to say, 
here the one begins and the other ends such distinctions however useful they may be as heads of classification to the student evade in general the duller wit of the tree worshipper we cannot therefore hope to lay our finger on that precise point in the history of the aryans when they ceased to worship the oak for its own sake and began to worship a god of the oak that point if it were ideally possible to mark it had doubtless been left far behind them by the more intelligent at least of our forefathers when they emerged into the light of history we must be content for the most part to find among them gods of whom the oak was an attribute or a sacred adjunct rather than the essence if we wish to find the original worship of the tree itself we must go forth to the ignorant peasantry of to-day not to the enlightened writers of antiquity further is to be borne in mind that while all oaks were probably the object of superstitious awe so the felling of any one of them for timber or firewood would be attended with ceremonies designed to appease the injured spirit of the tree only certain particular groves of individual oaks would in general receive that measure of homage which we should term worship the reasons which led men to venerate some trees more than others might be various among them the venerable age and imposing size of a giant oak would naturally account for much and any other striking peculiarity which marked a tree off from its fellows would be apt to attract the attention and to concentrate on itself the vague superstitious awe of the savage we know for example that with the druids the growth of mistletoe on an oak was a sign that the tree was especially sacred and the rarity of this feature for mistletoe does not commonly grow on oaks would enhance the sanctity and mystery of the tree for it is the strange the wonderful the rare not the familiar and commonplace which excites through those emotions of mankind the worship of the oak tree or of the oak god seems to have been common to all the aryans of europe the worship of the oak tree or of the oak god appears to have been shared by all the branches of the aryan stock in europe both greeks and italians associate the tree with their highest god zeus or jupiter the divinity of the sky the rain and the thunder worship of the oak in greece its association with zeus perhaps the oldest and certainly one of the most famous sanctuaries in greece was that of dodona where zeus was revered in the oracular oak the thunderstorms which are said to rage at dodona more frequently than anywhere else in europe would render the spot a fitting home for the god whose voice was heard alike in the rustling of the oak leaves and in the crash of thunder perhaps the bronze gongs which kept up a humming in the wind round the sanctuary were meant to mimic the thunder that might so often be heard rolling and rumbling in the combs of the stern and barren mountains which shut in the gloomy valley in boetia as we have seen the sacred marriage of zeus and hera the oak god and the oak goddess was celebrated with much pomp by a religious federation of states and on mount lycaeus in arcadia the character of zeus as god over the oak and of the rain comes out clearly in the rain charm practiced by the priests of zeus who dipped an oak branch in a sacred spring zeus as the rain god of the greeks in his later capacity zeus was the god to whom the greeks regularly prayed for rain nothing could be more natural for often though not always he had his seat on the mountains where the clouds gather and the oaks grow on the acropolis at athens there was an image of earth praying to zeus for rain and in time of drought the athenians themselves played rain rain o dear zeus on the cornland of the athenians and on the plains the mountains which lay round their city and to which they looked through the clear attic air for signs of the weather were associated by them with the worship of the weather god zeus 
It was a sign of rain when, away to sea, a cloud rested on the sharp peak of Aegina, which cut the skyline like a blue horn. On this far same peak, Panhellion Zeus was worshipped, and legend ran that once, when all Greece was parched with drought, envoys assembled in Aegina from every quarter and entreated Aeacus, the king of the island, that he would intercede with his father Zeus for rain. The king complied with the request, and when sacrifices and prayers wrung the needed showers from his sire, the sky god. Again it was a sign of rain at Athens, when clouds in summer lay on the top or the sides of Hymettus, the chain of barren mountains which bounds the Attic plain on the east, facing the westering sun and catching from its last beams the solemn glow of purple light. If during a storm a long bank of clouds was seen lowering on the mountains, it meant that the storm would increase in fury. Hence an altar of Shauri Zeus stood on Hymettus. Again, omens of weather were drawn when lightning flashed or clouds hung on the top of Mount Pyrenees to the north of Athens, and there, accordingly, an altar was set up to sign-giving Zeus. The climate of eastern Argolis is dry, and the rugged mountains are little better than a stony waterless wilderness. On one of them, named Mount Arachneus, or the Spider Mountain, stood altars of Zeus and Hera, and when rain was wanted, the people sacrificed there to the god and goddess. On the ridge of Mount Timolus, near Sardes, there was a spot called the birthplace of rainy Zeus, probably because clouds resting on it were observed to precede rain. The members of a religious society in the island of Kos used to go in procession of the sacrifices on an altar of rainy Zeus, when the thirsty land stood in need of refreshing showers. Zeus as a god of fertility Thus conceived as a source of fertility, it was not unnatural that Zeus should receive the title of the fruitful one, and that at Athens he should be worshipped under the surname of the husbandman. Zeus as a god of thunder and lightning. Again Zeus wielded the thunder and lightning as well as the rain. At Olympia and elsewhere he was worshipped under the surname of Thunderbolt, and at Athens there was a sacrificial hearth of lightning Zeus. On the city wall, where some priestly officials watched for lightning over the Mount Parnes at certain seasons of the year. Further, spots which had been struck by lightning were regularly fenced in by the Greeks and consecrated to Zeus, the descender, that is, to the god who came down in the flash from heaven. Altars were set up within these enclosures and sacrifices offered on them. Several such places are known from inscriptions to have existed in Athens. The Greek kings personified Zeus, as the Italian kings personified Jupiter. Thus, when ancient Greek kings claimed to be descended from Zeus, and even to bear his name, we may reasonably suppose that they also tended to exercise his divine functions by making thunder and rain for the good of their people, or the terror and confusion of their foes. In this respect, the legend of Salmonius probably reflects the pretensions of a whole class of petty sovereigns who reigned of old each over his little canton, in the oak-clad highlands of Greece. Though their kinsmen, the Irish kings, they are expected to be a source of fertility to the land and of fecundity to the cattle. And how could they fulfil these expectations better than acting the part of their kinsman Zeus, the great god of the oak, the thunder and the rain? They personified him, apparently, just as the Italian kings personified Jupiter, Jupiter in Italy, the god of the oak, the thunder, and the rain. In ancient Italy, every oak was sacred to Jupiter, 
the Italian counterpart of Zeus, and the capital of Rome, the god was worshipped as the dirty, not merely the oak, but of the rain and the thunder. Jupiter as a rain god. Contrasting the pity of the good old times with the scepticism in an age when nobody thought that heaven was heaven, or cared a fig for Jupiter, a Roman writer tells us that in former days, noble matrons used to go with bare feet, streaming hair, and pure minds, up the long Capitoline slope, praying to Jupiter for rain. And straight away, he goes on, it rained buckets full, then or never, and everybody returned dripping like drowned rats. But nowadays, says he, we are no longer religious, so the fields lie baking. And as Jupiter conjured up the clouds and caused them to discharge their genial burden on the earth, so he drove them away and brought the bright Italian sky back once more. Hence, he was worshipped under the titles of the Serene. He restores serenity. Jupiter is a god of fertility. Lastly, as god of the fertilizing showers, he made the earth to bring forth, so people called him the fruitful one. The god of the oak and the thunder among the northern Aryans. When we pass from southern to central Europe, we still meet with the great god of the oak and the thunder among the barbarous Aryans who dwelt in the vast primeval forests. Celtic worship of the oak. Thus among the Celts of Gaul, the Druids esteemed nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and the oak on which it grew. They chose groves of oaks for the scene of their solemn service. They performed none of their rites without oak leaves. The Celts, says a Greek writer, worship Zeus, and the Celtic image of Zeus is a tall oak. The Celtic conquerors who settled in Asia in the 3rd century before our era appear to have carried the worship of the oak with them to their new home. For in the heart of Asia Minor, the Galatian Senate met in a place which bore the pure Celtic name of Dynamitum, the sacred oak grove, or the Temple of the Oak. Indeed, the very name of Druids is believed by good authorities to mean no more than oak men. Traces of Sacred Oaks in Ireland When Christianity displaced Druidism in Ireland, the churches and monasteries were sometimes built in oak groves or under solitary oaks the choice of the site being perhaps determined by the immemorial sanctity of the trees, which might predispose the minds of the converts to receive with less reluctance the teaching of the new faith. But there is no positive evidence that the Irish druids performed their rites, like the Gallic brethren in oak groves, so the inference from the churches of Kildare, Derry, and the rest is merely a conjecture based on analogy. In the religion of the ancient Germans, the veneration of a sacred grove seems to have held the foremost place, and according to Grimm, the chief of their holy trees was the oak. The Teutonic God of the Oak and the Thunder It appears to have been especially dedicated to the God of Thunder, Donar, or Thunar, the equivalent of the Norse Thor, for the sacred oak near Geismar in Hees, which Boniface cut down in the 8th century, went among the heathen by the name of Jupiter's Oak, Robo Juvis, which in old German would be Donarese, the Oak of Donar. That the Teutonic thunder god Donar, Thunar, Thor, was identified with the Italian thunder god Jupiter appears from our word Thursday, Thunar's day, which is merely a rendition of the Latin Dies Jovis. Thus among the ancient Teutons, as among the Greeks and Italians, the god of the oak was also the god of the thunder. Moreover, he was regarded as the great fertilizing power 
who sent rain and caused the earth to bear fruit for adam of brevin tells us that thor presides in the air he it is who rules thunder and lightning wind and rains fine weather and crops in these respects therefore the teutonic thunder god again resembles his southern counterparts zeus and jupiter the worship of thor at Uppsala. and like them thor appears to have been the chief god of the pantheon from the great temple of Uppsala, his image occupied the middle place between the images of odin and frey and in oaths by this or other norse trinities he was always a principal deity invoked beside the temple of Uppsala, there was a sacred grove but the kinds of trees which grew in it are not known only of one tree we are told that it was of mighty size with great spreading branches and that it remained green winter and summer alike here too was a spring where sacrifices were offered they used to plunge a living man into the water and if he disappeared they drew a favourable omen every nine years at the spring equinox a great festival was held up cellar in honour of thor the god of thunder odin the god of war and frey the god of peace and pleasure the ceremonies lasted nine days nine male animals of every sort were sacrificed that their blood might appease the gods each day six victims were slaughtered of whom one was a man their bodies were fastened to the trees of the grove where dogs and horses might be seen hanging beside men perun the god of the oak and the thunder among the slavs among the slavs also the oak appears to have been the sacred tree of the thunder god perun the counterpart of zeus and jupiter it is said that at Novogorod they used to stand an image of Perun in the likeness of a man with a thunderstone in his hand. A fire of oak wood burned day and night in his honour, and if ever it went out, the attendants paid for their negligence with their lives. Perun seems like Zeus and Jupiter to have been the chief god of his people, for Procopius tells us that the Slavs believe that one god, the maker of lightning, is also lord of all things, and they sacrifice to him oxen and every victim. Pekuna is the chief Lithuanian god. The chief deity of the Lithuanians was Pekunas, or Pekuns, the god of thunder and lightning, whose resemblance to Zeus and Jupiter has often been pointed out. Pekunas, the god of the oak and the thunder among the Lithuanians. Oaks were sacrificed to him, and when they were cut down by the Christian missionaries, the people loudly complained that their Sylvian deities were destroyed. Perpetual fires kindled with the wood of certain oak trees were kept up in honour of Bakunans. If such a fire went out, it was lighted again by friction of the sacred wood. Men sacrificed to oak trees for good crops, while women did the same to lime trees, from which we may infer that they regarded oaks as male and lime trees as female. And in time of drought, when they wanted rain, they used to sacrifice a black heifer, a black he-goat, and a black cock to the thunder god in the depths of the woods. On such occasions the people assembled in great numbers from the country round about, ate and drank, and called upon Perkunas. They carried a bowl of beer thrice round the fire, then poured the liquid on the flames, while they prayed to the god to send showers. Thus the chief Lithuanian deity presents a close resemblance to Zeus and Jupiter, since he was the god of the oak, the thunder, and the rain. The god of the oak and the thunder among the Asonians Wedged in between the Lithuanians and the Slavs are the Estonians, a people who do not belong to the Aryan family, but they also share the reverence for the oak, and associate the tree with their thunder god Tara, the chief deity of the Pantheon, whom they called Old Father, or Father of Heaven. 
It is said that down to the beginning of the 19th century, Estonians used to smear the holy oaks, lime trees, and ash trees with the fresh blood of animals at least once a year. The following prayer to thunder is instructive because it shows how easily thunder, through its association with the rain, may appear to the rustic mind in the character of a beneficent and fertilizing power. Estonian Prayer to Thunder It was taken down from the lips of the Estonian peasant in the 17th century. Dear Thunder, he prayed, we sacrifice to thee an ox, which has two horns and four claws, and we would beseech thee for the sake of our ploughing and sowing, that our straw may be red as copper and our corn yellow as gold. Drive somewhere else all black, thick clouds over great marshes, high woods and wide wastes. But to us ploughmen and sowers, give a fruitful time and sweet rain. Holy thunder, guard our fields, that they may bear good straw below, good ears above, and good rain within. Sometimes, in time of great drought, an Estonian farmer would carry beer thrice round a sacrificial fire, then pour it on the flames with a prayer that the thunder god would be pleased to send rain. Panjanya, the old Indian god of thunder, rain, and fertility. In like manner, Parjanya, the old Indian god of thunder and rain, whose name is by some scholars identified with Lithuanian Prakunans, was conceived as a deity of fertility, who not only made plants to germinate, but caused cows, mares, and women to conceive. As a power who impregnated all things, he was compared to a bull, an animal which to the primitive herdsman is the most natural type of the procreative energies. Thus at him of the Rigveda, it is said of him, the bull, loud roaring, swift to send his bounty, lays in the plants the seed for germination. He smites the trees apart, he slays the demons, all life fears him who wields the mighty weapon. From him exceeding strong flees, Ian, the guiltless when thundering, Parjanya smites the wicked. Like a car driver whipping his horses, he makes the messengers of rain spring forward. Far off resounds the roaring of the lion, what time Parjanya fills the sky with rain cloud. Forth burst the winds, down come the lightning flashes, the plants shoot up, the realm of light is streaming. Food springs upon it for all living creatures, what time Parjana quickens earth with moisture. In another hymn, Parjana is spoken of as giver of growth to plants, the god who ruleth over the waters and all moving creatures, and is said that in him all living creatures have their being. Then the poet goes on, May this my song to sovereign Lord Parjanya come near into his heart and give him pleasure. May we obtain the showers of bring enjoyment and God-protected plants with goodly fruitage. He is a bull of all, and their impregner. He holds the life of all things fixed and moving. And yet another hymn we read, Sing forth, and Lord Parjanya, son of heaven, who sends the gift of rain. May he provide our pasturage. Parjanya is the god who forms in kind, in mares, in plants of earth and womanhood, the germ of life. In short, Parjanya is a god who presides over the lightning, the thunder, the rain, and the procreation of plants and living creatures. But it is by no means clear whether he is originally a god of the rain or a god of the thunder, for as both phenomena are always associated in India, either of the two opinions is admissible, if no deciding evidence comes from another quarter. On this point something will be said presently. Here is enough to have indicated the ease with which the notion of the thunder god passes into, or is combined with, the idea of a god of fertility in general. 
God of thunder, rain, and fertility among the Iroquois. The same combination meets us in Heno, the thunder spirit of the Iroquois. His office is not only to hurl his bolts at evildoers, but to cool and refresh the ground with showers to ripen the harvest and to mature the fruits of the earth. In spring, when they committed the seeds to the soil, the Indians prayed to him that he would water them and foster their growth, and at the harvest festival they thanked him for his gift of rain. Goddess of Lightning Rain and Fertility Among the Hoss The Hoss of Togoland and West Africa distinguish two deities of the lightning, a god Sogble and a goddess Sodza, who are husband and wife and talk with each other in the sound of thunder. The goddess has epithets applied to her, which seem to show that she is believed to send the rain and to cause the plants to grow. She is addressed as mother of men and beasts, ship full of yams, ship full of the most ferried fullness. Further is said that to be she who blesses the tilt land. Moreover, like the Hindu thunder god Bajanya, who slays demons, the Ho thunder goddess drives away evil spirits and witches from people's houses. Under her protection, children multiply and the inmates of the house remain healthy. Gods of thunder, rain and fertility among the Indians of the Andes and the Abchases of the Caucasus. The Indians of the Andes about Lake Titicaca, believe in a thunder god named Con or Khan, whom they call the Lord or Father of the Mountains, Kro Alqui. He is regarded as a powerful being, but irritable and difficult to assess, who dwells on the high mountains about the line of perpetual snow. Yet he gives great gifts to those who win his favour, and when the crops are languishing for lack of rain, the Indians try to rouse the god from his torpor by pouring a small libation of brandy into a tarn below the snow line, for they did not set foot on the snow, lest they should meet the dreadful thunder god face to face. His bird is the condor, and the eagle was the bird of the Greek thunder god Zeus. Similarly, in time of drought, the abjases of the Caucasus sacrifice an ox to Aphi, the god of thunder and lightning, and an old man prays him to send rain, thunder and lightning, telling him that the crops are parched, the grass burnt up, and the cattle starving. These examples show how readily a thunder god may come to be viewed as a power of fertility. The connecting link is furnished by the fertilizing rain which usually accompanies a thunderstorm. Traces of the worship of the oak in modern Europe As might have been expected, the ancient worship of the oak in Europe has left its print in popular custom and superstition down to modern times. Thus, in the French department of Maine, it is said that solitary oak trees in the fields are still worshipped though the priests have sought to give the worship a Christian colour by hanging images of saints in the trees. In various parts of Lower Saxony and Westphalia, as late as the first half of the 19th century, traces of eyes of the sanctity of certain oaks, to which the people paid a half-heathenish, half-Christian worship. In the principality of Minden, young women of both sexes used to dance around an old oak on Easter Saturday with loud shouts of joy. Not far from the village of Warmelon, in the neighbourhood of Paderborn, there stood a holy oak in the forest to which the inhabitants of Warmelon and Kallenberg went every year in solemn procession. Another vestige of superstitious reverence for the oak in Germany is the custom of passing sick people and animals through a natural or artificial opening in the trunk of an oak for the purpose of healing them of their infirmities. At a village near Ragnit in East Prussia, there was an oak which down to the 17th century the villagers regarded as sacred, firmly believing that any person who harmed it would be visited with misfortune, 
especially with its some bodily element. About the middle of the 19th century, the Lithuanians still laid offerings for spirits under ancient oaks, and old-fashioned people among them preferred to cook the viands for funeral banquets on a fire of oak wood, or at least under an oak tree. Worship of the Oak in Modern Russia On the rivulet Mixi, between the governments of Pshov and Livonia in Russia, there stood a stunted, withered, but holy oak which received the homage of the neighbouring peasantry down at least to 1874. An eyewitness has described the ceremonies. He found a great crowd of people, chiefly Estonians of the Greek church, assembled with their families about the tree, all dressed in colour costume. Some of them had brought wax candles, and were fastening them about the trunk and in the branches. Soon a priest arrived, and having donned his sacred robes, proceeded to sing a canticle, such as is usually sung in the Orthodox church in honour of saints. But instead of saying as usual, Holy Saint, pray the Lord for us, he said, Holy Oak, Hallelujah, pray for us. Then he incensed the tree all round. During the service, the tapers on the oak were lighted, and the people, throwing themselves on the ground, adored the holy tree. When the pastor had retired, his flock remained till late at night, feasting, drinking, dancing, and lighting fresh tapers on the oak, till everybody was drunk, and the proceedings ended in an orgy. Ceremonial fires kindled by the friction of oak wood. Another relic of the ancient sanctity of the oak has survived to modern times in the practice of kindling ceremonial fires by means of the friction of oak wood. This has been done, either at stated seasons of the year or on occasions of distress, by Slavs, Germans and Celts, taken together with perpetual sacred fires of oak wood, which have been found among the Slavs, the Lithuanians and the ancient Romans. The wide prevalence of the practice seems clearly to point back to a time when the forefathers of the Aryans in Europe dwelt in forests of oak, fed their fires with oak wood, and rekindled them when they chanced to go out by rubbing two oaken sticks against each other. In the great European god of the oak, the thunder and the rain, the original element seems to have been the oak. From the foregoing survey of the facts it appears that a god of the oak, thunder and the rain, was worshipped of old by all the main branches of the Aryan stock in Europe, and was indeed the chief deity of the Pantheon. It was natural enough that the oak should loom large in the religion of people who lived in oak forests, used oak timber for building, oak sticks for fuel, and oak acorns for food and fodder. But we still had to explain how they were led to associate the thunder and the rain with the oak in the conception of this great divinity. From the nature of the cause, our solution of the problem must be conjectural. We can only guess at the train of thought which prompted our forefathers to link together things which to us seem so very different. Thunder and rain may indeed naturally be regarded as akin, since the two so often occur together, but the difficulty is to understand why the oak should be joined with them. Which of the three elements was the original nucleus about which the others afterwards clustered? In our ignorance of the facts, this question amounts to asking whether on the principles of savage thought, it is easy to suppose that an original god of thunder and rain should afterwards add the oak tree to his attributes, or that, on the contrary, an old god of the oak should annex himself the thunder and the rain. In favour of the first of these suppositions, it may be said that a god of thunder and rain might in time be regarded as a god of the oak, because thunder and rain come from the sky, and the oak reaches skyward and is often struck by lightning. The clue to the development of a lightning god out of an oak god may have been the notion that the heavenly fire or lightning was made 
like the earthly fire by the friction of oak wood but this train of thought is highly likely to carry conviction even to the mind of a savage on the other hand it is not difficult to imagine how early man in europe might suppose the thunder or rather the lightning to be derived from the oak seeing that fire on earth was regularly kindled by the rubbing of oaken sticks together he might readily infer that fire in heaven was produced in like manner in other words that the flash of lightning was a spark elicited by someone who was lighting his fire in the usual fashion of aloft for the savage commonly explains natural phenomena by ideas drawn from the circle of his own daily life similarly people who are accustomed to make fire by means of flints sometimes suppose that lightning is produced in the same way this is reported of the armenians and it may be inferred of the many people who believe that the flint implements of prehistoric races are thunderbolts when an oak god has once grown into a lightning god he would easily develop into a god of the rain and the sky thus it is easy to conceive how a god of the oak viewed as the source of earthly fire should come to be regarded as a god of the lightning and hence by an easy extension of ideas as a god of thunder and rain accordingly we may provisionally assume that the great Aryan gods who combine these various functions have been evolved in this fashion a further step in their promotion will be taken when the whole sky was assigned to their dominion the greeks and italians certainly advanced their zeus and jupiter to the lofty position but there seems to be no evidence that the Aryans of the north ever raised their corresponding deities to the rank of the sky gods in general it is commonly indeed assumed that the sky was the original province of all these deities or rather of the single Aryan god from which they are descended but on this theory it is hard to see why the god of the sky should have taken up with the oak not only that but should have clung to it even after he had in some places at least begun to sit very loose to his old home the vault of heaven surely his fidelity to the oak from the earliest to the latest times among all the different families of his european worshippers is a strong argument for regarding the tree as the primary not the secondary element in his composite nature End of section seventeen. Section 18 of The Golden Bough, Part 1 The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2 by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 21 Dianus and Diana. Recapitulation. In this chapter, I propose to recapitulate the conclusions to which the inquiry has thus far led us and drawing together the scattered rays of light to turn them on the dark figure of the priest of nimai rise of sacred kings who are supposed to be endowed with magical divine powers we have found that at an early stage of society men ignorant of the sacred processes of nature and of the narrow limits within which it is our power to control and direct them have calmly arrogated to themselves functions which in the present state of knowledge we should deem superhuman or divine. The illusion has been fostered and maintained by the same causes which begot it, namely, the marvellous order and uniformity with which nature conducts her operations, the wheels of her great machine revolving in a smoothness and precision which enable the patient observer to anticipate in general the season, if not the very hour when they will bring round the fulfilment of his hopes or the accomplishment of his fears. The regularly recurring events of this great cycle, or rather series of cycles, soon 
stamp themselves even on the dull mind of the savage evil sees them and foreseeing them mistakes the desired recurrence for an effect of his own will and the dreaded recurrence for an effect of the will of his enemies thus the springs which set the vast machine in motion though they lie far beyond our ken shrouded in a mystery which we can never hope to penetrate appear to ignorant man to lie within his reach he fancies he can touch them and so work by magic art all manner of good to himself and evil to his foes transition from magic to religion in time the fallacy of this belief becomes apparent to him he discovers that there are things he cannot do pleasures which he is unable of himself to procure pains which even the most potent magician is powerless to avoid the unattainable good the inevitable ill are now ascribed by him to the action of invisible powers whose favour is joy and life whose anger is misery and death thus magic tends to be displaced by religion and the sorcerer by the priest at this stage of thought the ultimate cause of things are conceived to be personal beings many in number and often discordant in character who partake of the nature and even of the frailty of man though their might is greater than his and their life far exceeds the span of his infernal existence their sharply marked individualities their clear-cut outlines have not yet begun under the powerful solvent of philosophy to melt the coalesce into that single unknown substratum of phenomena which according to the qualities with which our imagination invests it goes by one or other of the highest sounding names with the wit of man has devised a high ignorance incarnate human deities accordingly so long as men look on their gods as beings akin to themselves not raised to an unapproachable height above them they believe it to be possible for those of their own number who surpass their fellows to obtain to the divine rank after death or even in life incarnate human deities of this latter sort may be said to hold midway between the age of magic and the age of religion if they bear the names and display the pomp of deities the powers which they are supposed to wield are commonly those of their predecessor the magician like him they are expected to guard their people against hostile enchantments to heal them in sickness to bless them with offspring and to provide them with an abundant supply of food by regulating the weather and perform the other ceremonies which are deemed necessary to ensure the fertility of the earth and the multiplication of animals men who are credited with power so lofty and far-reaching naturally hold the highest place in the land and while the rift between the spiritual and temporal spheres has not yet widened too far they are supreme in civil as well as religious matters in a word they are kings as well as gods thus the divinity which hedges a king has its roots deep down in human history and long ages pass before these are sapped by a profound view of nature and man the king of the wood and nemi seems to have been one of these divine kings and to have mated with the divine queen of the wood dinah in the classical period of greek and latin antiquity the reign of kings was for the most part a thing of the past yet the stories of their lineage titles and pretensions suffice to prove that they too claim to rule by divine right and to exercise superhuman powers hence we may without undue temerity assume that the king of the wood and nemi though short in latter times of his glory and fallen on evil days represented a long line of sacred kings who had once received not only the homage but the adoration of their subjects in return for the manifold blessings which they were supposed to dispense 
What little we know of the functions of Diana and the Arician grove seems to prove that she was here conceived as a goddess of fertility, and particularly as a divinity of childbirth. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that in the discharge of these important duties she was assisted by her priest, the two figuring as king and queen of the wood in a solemn marriage, which was intended to make the earth gay with the blossoms of spring and the fruits of autumn, and to gladden the hearts of men and women with healthful offspring. Furbius, whom the king of a wood represented, was probably a form of Jupiter regarded as the god of the greenwood, and especially of the oak. When the priests of Nemai posed not merely as a king, but as a god of the grove, we have still to ask, what deity in particular did he personate? The answer of antiquity is that he represented Verbius, the consort or lover of Diana, but this does not help us much, for of Verbius we know little more than the name. A clue to the mystery is perhaps supplied by the vestal fire which burned in the grove, for the perpetual holy fires of the Aryans in Europe appear to have been commonly kindled and fed with oak wood, and we have seen that in Rome itself, not many miles from Nemai, the fuel of the vestal fire consisted of oaken sticks or logs, which in early days the holy maidens doubtless gathered or cut in the coppices of oak that once covered the seven hills. But the ritual of the various Latin towns seems to have been marked by great uniformity, hence it is reasonable to conclude that wherever in Latium a vestal fire was maintained, it was fed, as at Rome, with wood of the sacred oak. If this was so at Nemai, it becomes probable that the hallowed grove there consisted of a natural oak wood, and that therefore the tree which the king of the wood had to guard at the peril of his life was itself an oak. Indeed, it was an evergreen oak, according to Virgil, that Aeneas plucked the golden bale. Now the oak was the sacred tree of Jupiter, the supreme god of the Latins, hence it follows that the king of the wood, whose life was bound up in a fashion with an oak, personated no less a deity than Jupiter himself. At least the evidence, slight as it is, seems to point to this conclusion. The old Alban dynasty of the Silvi, or woods, with their crown of oak leaves, apparently aped the style and emulated the powers of Latian Jupiter, who dwelt on the top of the Alban Mount. It is not impossible that the king of the wood, who guarded the sacred oak a little lower down the mountain, was the lawful successor and representative of this ancient line, of the Sylvie or Woods. At all events, if I am right in supposing that he passed for a human Jupiter, it would appear that Verbius, with whom legend identified him, was nothing but a local form of Jupiter, considered perhaps in his original aspect as a god of the Greenwood. Diana and the Oak The hypothesis that in later times, at all events, the king of the wood played the part of the oak god Jupiter is confirmed by an examination of his divine partner, Diana. Diana, the divine partner of the king of the wood and Nemai, seems to have been especially associated with the oak. For two distinct lines of argument converge to show that, if Diana was a queen of the woods in general, she was a Nemai, a goddess of the oak in particular. In the first place, she bore the title of Vesta, and as such presided over perpetual fire, which we have seen reason to believe was fed with oak wood. But a goddess of fire is not far removed from a goddess of the fuel which burns in the fire. Primitive thought perhaps draws no sharp line of distinction between the blaze and the wood that blazes. 
In the second place, the nymph Egeria and Nemi appears to have been merely a form of Diana, and Egeria is definitely said to have been a dryad, a nymph of the oak. Elsewhere in Italy, the goddess had her home on oak-clad mountains. Thus Mount Algidas, a spur of the Alban hills, was covered in antiquity with dark forests of oak, both the evergreen and the deciduous sort. In winter, the snow lay long on these cold hills, and the gloomy oak woods were believed to be a favourite haunt of Diana, as they have been of brigands in modern times. Again, Mount Defata, the long abrupt ridge of the Apennines, which looks down on the Campanian plain behind Capua, was wooded of old with evergreen oaks, among which Diana had a temple. Hirsala thanked the goddess for his victory over the Marians in the plain below, attesting his gratitude by inscriptions which were long afterwards to be seen in the temple. On the whole, then, we conclude that at Nemai, the king of the wood, personated the oak god Jupiter, and met it with the oak goddess Dinah in the sacred grove. An echo of a mystic union has come down to us in the legend of the loves of Numa and Egeria, who, according to some, had their trusting place in these holy woods. In nature and in name, Dionys, Janus, and Diana seem to be only dialectically different forms of Jupiter and Juno. To this theory, it may naturally be objected that the divine consort of Jupiter was not Diana, but Juno, and that if Diana had a mate at all, he might be expected to bear the name, not of Jupiter, but of Dionys or Janus, the latter of these forms being merely a corruption of the former. All this is true, but the objection may be parried by observing that the two pairs of deities, Jupiter and Juno, on the one side, and Dionys and Diana, or Janus and Jana, on the other side, are merely duplicates of each other, their names and their functions being in substance and origin identical. With regard to their names, all four of them come from the same Aryan root, Dai, meaning bright, which occurs in the names of the corresponding Greek deities Zeus and his old female consort Dion. In regard to their functions, Juno and Diana were both goddesses of fecundity and childbirth, and both were sooner or later identified with the moon. As to the true nature and functions of Janus, the ancients themselves were puzzled, and where they hesitated, it is not for us confidently to decide. But the view mentioned by Varro, that Janus was a god of the sky, is supported not only by the etymological identity of his name, with that of the sky god Jupiter, but also by the relation in which he appears to have stood on Jupiter's two mates, Juno and Juturna. For the epithet Juronian bestowed on Janus points to a marriage union between the two deities, and according to one account, Janus was a husband of the water nymph Juturna, who, according to others, was beloved by Jupiter. Moreover, Janus, like Jove, was regularly invoked and commonly spoken of under the title of father. Indeed, he was identified with Jupiter, not merely by logic of a Christian doctor, but by the piety of a pagan worshipper who decided an offering to Jupiter Dionys. A trace of his relation to the oak may be found in the oak woods of the Janiculum, the hill on the right bank of the Tiber, where Janus is said to have reigned as a king in the remotest ages of Italian history. Zeus and Dione, Jupiter and Juno, Dionys, Janus, and Diana represent a single original pair of Aryan deities, which, through purely dialectical differences of nomenclature, gradually diverged from each other and came to be regarded as separate pairs of deities. Thus, if I am right, the same ancient pair of deities was variously known among the Greek and Italian peoples as Zeus and Dion, Jupiter and Juno, or Dionys, Janus, and Dinah, Jenna. 
the names of the divinities been identical in substance though varying in form with the dialect of the particular tribe which worshipped them at first when the peoples dwelt near each other the difference between the deities would be hardly more than one of name in other words it would be almost purely dialectical but the gradual dispersion of the tribes and their consequent isolation from each other would favour the growth of divergent modes of conceiving and worshipping the gods whom they had carried with them from their old homes so that in time discrepancies of myth and ritual would tend to spring up and thereby to convert a nominal into a real distinction between the divinities accordingly when the slow progress of culture the long period of barbarism and separation was passing away and the rising political power of a single strong community had begun to draw or hammer its weaker neighbours into a nation the confluent peoples would throw their gods like their dialects into a common stock and thus it might come about that the same ancient deities with their forefathers had worshipped together before the dispersion would now be so disguised by the accumulated effect of dialectical and religious divergencies that their original identity might fail to be recognised and they would take their places side by side as independent divinities in the national pantheon this explanation of janus as equivalent to jupiter is more probable than the view that janus was originally nothing but the god of the door janus for the door genua seems rather to have been named after janus than he after it the duplication of deities the result of the final fusion of kindred tribes who had long lived apart would account for the appearance of janus beside jupiter and diana or jana beside juno in the roman religion at least this appears to be a more probable theory than the opinion which has found favour with some modern scholars that janus was originally nothing but the god of doors that a deity of his dignity and importance whom the romans revered as a god of gods and the father of his people should have started in life as a humble though doubtless respectable doorkeeper appears to me i confess very unlikely so lofty an end hardly consorts with so lowly a beginning it is more probable that the door janua got its name from janus than that he got his name from it this view is strengthened by the consideration of the word jonah itself the regular word for door is the same in all the languages of the aryan family from india to ireland it is dur in sanskrit thura in greek tur in german dur in english doras in old irish and forest in latin yet besides this ordinary name for door which the latins share with all their aryan brethren they had also the name janua to which there is no corresponding term in any indo-european speech the word has the appearance of being an adjective form derived from the noun janus i conjecture that it may have been customary to set up an image or symbol of janus at the principal door of the house in order to place the entrance under the protection of the great god a door thus guarded might be known as a janua fortis that is a genuine door and the phrase might in time be abridged into janua the noun forest being understood but not expressed from this to the use of genoa to designate a door in general whether guarded by an image of janus or not would be an easy and natural transition the double-headed figure of janus may have originated in a custom of placing his image as guardian of doorways so as to face both ways outwards and inwards at the same time if there is any truth in this conjecture it may explain very simply the origin of the double head of janus which has so long exercised the ingenuity of mythologists when it has become customary to guard the entrance of houses and towns by an image of janus 
it might well be deemed necessary to make the sentinel god look both ways before and behind at the same time in order that nothing should escape his vigilant eye for the divine watchman always faced in one direction it is easy to imagine what mischief might have been wrought with impunity behind his back this explanation is confirmed by the double-headed idols which the bush negroes of Suriname set to guard the entrances of their villages this explanation of the double-headed janus at rome is confirmed by the double-headed idol which the bush negroes in the interior of Suriname regularly set up as a guardian at the entrance of a village the idol consists of a block of wood with a human face rudely carved on each side it stands under a gateway composed of two uprights and a crossbar beside the idol generally lies a white rag intended to keep off the devil and sometimes there is also a stick which seems to represent a bludgeon or weapon of some sort further from the crossbar hangs a small log which serves useful purpose of knocking on the head any evil spirit who might attempt to pass through the gateway clearly this double-headed fetish at the gateway of the negro villages in Suriname bears a close resemblance to the double-headed images of janus which grasping a stick in one hand and a key in the other stood sentinel at roman gates and doorways and we can hardly doubt that in both cases the heads facing two ways are to be similarly explained as expressive of the vigilance of the guardian god who kept his eye on spiritual foes behind and before and stood ready to bludgeon them on the spot we may therefore dispense with the tedious and unsatisfactory explanations which the willie janus himself fogged off an anxious roman inquirer in the interior of borneo the kenyas generally place before the main entrance of their houses the wooden image of baliatap that is the spirit or god bali of the roof who protects the household from harm of all kinds but it has not appeared that this divine watchman is provided with more than one face thus the king of the wood and nemi seems to have personated the great Aryan god of the oak jupiter or janus and to have mated with the oak goddess dinah to apply these conclusions to the priest of nemi we may suppose that as the mate of diana he represented originally dianus or janus rather than jupiter but that difference between these deities was of old merely superficial going little deeper than the names and leaving practically unaffected the essential functions of the god as a power of the sky the thunder and the oak if my analysis of this great divinity is correct the original element in this composite nature was the oak it was fitting therefore that his human representative in nemi should dwell as we have seen reason to believe he did in an oak grove his title of king of the wood clearly indicates the sylvan character of the deity whom he served and since he could only be assailed by him who had plucked the bough of a certain tree in the grove his own life might be said to be bound up with that of the sacred tree thus he not only served but embodied the great alien god of the oak and as an oak god he would mate with the oak goddesses whether she went by the name of egeria or diana their union however consummated would be deemed essential to the fertility of the earth and the fecundity of man and beast further as the oak god had grown into a god of the sky the thunder and the rain so his human representative would be required like many other divine kings to cause the clouds together the thunder to peal and the rain to descend in due season and the fields and orchards might bear fruit and the pastures be covered with luxuriant herbage the reputed professor of power so exalted must have been a very important personage and the remains of buildings and of votive offerings 
which have been found on the site of the sanctuary combined with the testimony of classical writers to prove that at later times it was one of the greatest and most popular shrines in italy even in the old days when the champagne country around was still parcelled out among the petty tribes who composed the latin league the sacred grove is known to have been an object of their common reverence and care and just as the kings of cambodia used to send offerings to the mystic kings of fire and water far in the dim depths of the tropical forest so we may well believe from all sides of the broad latin plain the eyes and footsteps of italian pilgrims turned to the quarter where standing sharply out against the faint blue line of the apennines or the deeper blue of the distant sea the alban mountain rose before them the home of the mysterious priest of nimai the king of the wood there among the green woods and beside the still waters of the lonely hills the ancient iron worshipper the god of the oak the thunder and the dripping sky lingered in its early almost druidical form long after a great political intellectual revolution and shifted the capital of latin religion from the forest to the city from nemi to rome end of section eighteen and end of the golden bell part one the magic art of the evolution of kings volume two by sir james george fraser narrated by leon harvey what's spring like in park city utah imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts park city mountain and deer valley exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis wandering our historic main street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants when you love it like we love it park city utah will always be winter's favorite town join the experience at visitparkcity.com